This podcast is produced by the ABA Journal. We bring you the latest legal news every day from around the web. Visit us online at abajournal.com. The Unfinished Business Doctrine is a compelling issue for law firms given the public flameout of Dewey and ramifications for firms at higher laterals from a dissolving firm. I'm Business of Law reporter Rachel Zahorsky, and I'm joined by Brent Widener of Beasley and Gibson Dunn partner Kevin Rosen to discuss the status of the doctrine, which appears destined for the Second Circuit, and what firms can do now to address the issue. Brent, can you please give us some background on where the doctrine stands with the courts and why firms should be paying attention to the different rulings that have come about and where it could be headed in the future? Sure. Thanks. Thanks, Rachel. I mean, all of this, first of all, stems from this California case called Jewel v. Boxer, which was decided in 1984. And Jewel essentially says that absent an agreement to the contrary, and that agreement might be something called a Jewel waiver, which we may talk about later, the net income from work in progress at the time of the dissolution belongs to the former partner, so that the former partners of the firm have the that, that essentially the unfinished business that they have taken with them is is an asset of the former firm, and that's how this all comes up. Um, as you noted, there's a couple of recent developments that have sort of brought this issue to the fore and, and jump-started a lot of interest in it. And one of those one of those issues is is to the Dewey dissolution, which which was very prominently reported. And there have been a number of other large law firm dissolutions over the last several years. And so that's sort of point one. And those those firms have kind of become poster children now for how this issue can become a problem. And the other point that that you made reference to is the fact that there have been two recent decisions, both in the Southern District of New York, from two different judges that have weighed in on the issue in, in somewhat conflicting ways. And I guess from my perspective, the bottom line on this is that you know, every every law firm out there that hires laterals and knows that there are certain risks associated with lateral hiring, and they've I think become accustomed to dealing with those risks. And those you know sort of the traditional risks of hiring in terms of due diligence and conflicts and integration and things like. That. But this specter of this unfinished business doctrine adds kind of another another headache for firm for hiring firms and, and complicates the process. And you know the two recent cases. I mean, I think there was some thought that perhaps those cases, one related, arose out of the Kudair law firm dissolution, and it was called Development Specialists versus Aiken Gump. And there was a host of firms that were involved in, in, the, in the case caption. So Aiken was the one that I think was mentioned most. The, the two recent cases address the question of sort of what kind of work is contemplated. And, and instead of answering the question, they've kind of made it a lot murkier because in development specialists, Judge McMahon said she applied the Jewel v. Boxer rule to all matters, both contingency matters or hourly matters. And whereas the, the next case, and that was decided in May of 2012, the next case, Judge Pauley said that dissolved, I mean, the crux of what he came away with was the dissolved law firm's pending hourly matters are not partnership assets. So there's a there's a dispute between Judge Pauly and Judge McMahon, and the expectation is that, that the Second Circuit will likely take this on. We, one of the reasons we wanted to talk today is we've been hearing from legal consultants that they've got lists of firms on their, on their watch list. We've got other firms that are emerging, and who's going to make it and who's not. We've seen an uptick in lateral movement. Yep. So even as this case is gearing up, before it gets there, 
firms should be considering what the ramifications are. And I'm hoping, Kevin, you might want to jump in now to give us a little bit more perspective on what firms who are the destination firm for some of these laterals need to be thinking about as, as a way to protect themselves should this become an issue for them. Well, thanks, Rachel. And, and as Brand alluded to, there are a lot of tasks that a potential destination firm will undertake in connection with lateral hiring as in conflicts and, and a business case and some of those other issues. And, and I think it's sometimes useful to think of this as another task that should be undertaken. In the event you are talking to someone from a firm that either is reported to be having problems or you might independently suspect is having problems or just perhaps from a general sense of prudence in order to create some systemic approaches to try to deal with it. Now, there are a number of legal and factual challenges that can be made you know, once you find yourself in litigation in terms of the scope of, of the law that Brant was talking about, how you measure and quantify the amount of un, unfinished business. That's beyond the scope of, of this podcast, although they prevent, present very interesting issues. Putting aside the legal and factual challenges that I was alluding to, there are some steps that can be taken in that initial fact-finding process with respect to the lateral that, that can be helpful if you find yourself down the road defending against unfinished business claims. I probably would lump them into three categories. The first one would be what I perhaps would characterize as, as record keeping and documentation. What kind of record are you going to have in place when you are attempting to defend against the unfinished business doctrine challenges? And I, I think to some degree it, it is a bit more applicable in the hourly fee matters than it is in the contingency matters, but nevertheless there, there are some useful things to think about there. Second one is an early exposure analysis that I'll talk about as well briefly. And the third one, where I think there are probably different views as to whether this is really a practical alternative, I just mention it because some people view it as such, and that is proactively reaching out to the trustee in the event that the firm is already in dissolution or reaching out to the receiver to the extent the firm may be in receivership. Circling back to the first one, which I think is the most significant what I've called record keeping and documentation. What you want to do basically is make sure you are sensitive to the record that's being created in the process of the lateral partner hiring and then the lateral partner's in initial integration, that you are not facilitating the argument that the lateral partner is simply carrying over unfinished business to your firm. And many times that may be the case, and many times it's not the case, and in many times it's, uh, it's a gray area. So to the extent, for example, that the lateral partner can close matters at his prior firm before leaving. Many times, for example, lawyers have for particular clients what they'll call general matters, and those general matters are left open, and then the lateral partner moves to the destination firm and opens up a new matter called general matters. It's very easy for a trustee or a receiver to argue that that's just a continuation of a matter that was, up, was open over to the new firm, as contrasted with perhaps closing the general matter file prior to leaving at the other firm and opening a matter that is titled something different. For example, just titled something commensurate with the new task that is being undertaken rather than just as a general matter. In terms of internal communications related to the lateral 
higher, both before and after the lateral partner arrives. I think we want to be sensitive to internal communications that refer to simply transferring over uh, matters from one firm to another to the extent we can. A lot, a lot of sound bites can be had in documents inadvertently using words and language that fit into the trustee's theory. Another aspect of this record keeping or documentation process can be built into retention agreements. There certainly should be new retention agreements that are entered into for every matter that comes over. In many instances, there'll be differences in the retention agreements between the old firm and the new firm. Certainly things like rates, I would expect, and other terms in there. And to the extent a retention agreement can be crafted in such a way with these matters in mind for those lateral partners' initial uh, agreements that they enter into. It still it, it provides more useful uh, evidence that can can facilitate the defense, or perhaps better stated, it provides it certainly doesn't provide the trustee with something that the trustee can rely on to use against the firm at a minimum. In some instances, depending on the status of a matter, you you might be able to uh, enlist the client in such a way to characterize the matter as being transitioned from one stage of whether it be of a transaction or a litigation matter or one piece of, of advice versus another piece of advice from one stage to another. And uh, those types of uh, facts as well may be useful in terms of defending against the case. All of these things, I think, a lot are common sense if we think about the issue in advance as we're involved in this potential lateral acquisition process and then the early stages of the integration process. If we keep these in mind, a lot of these, a lot of these approaches to the documentation will fall into place. Brent, we talked about the importance of documentation and, and a heightened awareness of things that need to be documented within law firms in the past with outside vendors, what to do if clients aren't paying bills on time, et cetera, et cetera. It seems to be kind of a reoccurring theme. Do you think law firms are being more aware and being more careful with record keeping and documentation or that there still needs to be just this general warning? And, I, and I'm thinking back to an attorney that I spoke to who was a partner when Alzheimer Gray went under and his impression was just that he had no idea. Even if he had left as a lateral at that time, he had no idea the state of the firm and what was going on. And I'm just wondering these days, are we seeing more partners demanding to know kind of the financials of the firm or just record keeping, maybe things that perhaps were a little bit more lack in the past are definitely going to be something where there's more heightened scrutiny in the future? Well, I think that's exactly right. And I, and I think the point here, at least for part of this exercise, is to make sure that both, you know, hiring firms and partners and lawyers who are leaving firms and joining new firms need to be aware of, need to be aware that this issue is out there and that it is something that is a potential risk to them as they move from one firm to the next. Most law firms are not going to be particularly willing to open up their books and let let the hiring firm get a sense of whether or not they're in a potential potential insolvent position. But but at the same time, you know, the points that I think Kevin's making are certainly absolutely valid ones that firms ought to be thinking about and trying to document and keep track of what, what is going on as, as the process is going forward, the hiring process and what type of work is coming in and how you characterize it. But at the same time, to the extent that firms can or that a hiring firm can glean some information from public records or from some from some source about the 
um, solvency of a particular firm, it, it can give itself a little more information about what the prospect is for a potential issue down the line. And that, that's really the heart, I think, of what this jewel boxer issue is all about, pending some further elucidation on it from the courts. I mean, that, that, and in the mean, you know, who knows when that's going to happen, but in the meantime, firms still need to continue to conduct business and continue to hire. Brands right. always do a good job of keeping us abreast of the risks that lawyers need to be aware of within their you know, my own, my, on the business side. My own experience in, in handling a lot of matters in defense of, of, of law firms, that, that law firms are staffed with, with pretty bright people. And once an issue is identified as something to think about, there's much less likely to be missteps that can become problems later in litigation, whether it's unfinished business litigation or otherwise, than steps that are taken without knowledge of uh, potential issues. So I think the, the first step is simply by listening to this and understanding that there are potential issues like this when you're bringing on a lateral partner to begin to ask these questions. That's a very important first step. And with that understanding, I think m most firms will be in a position to at least minimize what would have been the impact of steps taken without an understanding of these potential dangers. I think that's a good note for us to end on right there. We're out of time today, but Brant, thank you as always for joining us. Kevin, thank you so much. I know you've written some of the Beasley brief, and we appreciate having you here at the ABA Journal and hope that you come back. Thanks. Thank Thanks, you, Rachel. This podcast was brought to you by the ABA Journal. For more podcasts on the legal issues of the day, visit us online at abajournal.com or subscribe for free to the ABA Journal podcast on iTunes.